0: Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is Episode 8, The Tomb Raider Grid, Part 2.
1: I guess because it was easy to use, I mean, you know, that was the point about it, and that's what made Tomb Raider probably as intricate as it was for at the time, because the levels could be modified so easily i think that's probably something that's in some ways i do feel has been lost because you know i love games like um uncharted and whatnot but you can tell that i've looked into how they're doing it and you can see that they have to just kind of design the path through the level and where you're going to be able to grab onto and where you're not up front and then the artists then just obviously make these fantastic looking environments but they they're kind of restricted to what's been decided already.
0: In case you missed part one or you needed a reminder, this is Gavin Rummery. He was the programmer who came up with the grid-based level editor at the heart of the first five Tomb Raider games.
1: To me, at least this kind of disjointed thing that you've got this environment that looks like you should be able to climb up about 50 different ways across the level, but actually there's only the ones where they've marked the ledges in kind of white paint that actually allow you to go that way whereas of course back in tomb raider days it didn't work like that at all if lara could reach it she could grab onto it and you know our qa was this kind of nightmare of qa guys finding alternative routes across the level or whatever but i think that's kind of fun in the sense that you know because i know people have found different ways across levels that they're not supposed to But yeah, having that kind of easy way of building environments, it's obviously just not possible anymore.
0: Game development today is drastically different to the way it was 20 years ago, back in the days of the original Tomb Raider series. Back then, there was no Unity or Unreal Engine to work in, and when Core Design were making the very first Tomb Raider, there wasn't even a Quake engine to license. So a quick side note on that point, if you trace back the lineage of modern game development tools, most of them start with id Software's Quake Engine, which was one of the first 3D game creation tools that you could license for your own games. mid-1990s, most games were still made more or less from scratch, which meant that much of the development time was spent on technology, on coding the tools that designers and artists use to fill the game with stuff to see and do, and the systems that make the game work. Nowadays, by contrast, engines are frequently licensed or reused, and the biggest pipeline issue... Often comes during the content phase, by which I mean that today it's the art that tends to take the most time to do, by a long shot, with tens and hundreds of thousands of man hours put into graphics on what they call AAA games. Now that's just a fancy word used to describe games backed by a big budget that ensures the highest caliber graphics and sound and technical work that current generation game consoles can handle. So it's the video game equivalent of a blockbuster movie. The key thing to note here is not so much that the choke point in the development pipeline has shifted in 20 years, but rather that the consequence of that shift is that teams are now huge. Tomb Raider 1 was made by a team of six Rise of the Tomb Raider, the most recent entry in the franchise, from 2015, had around 200 people across art, sound, coding and design, plus hordes of additional quality assurance testers and other support roles. Tomb Raider 1 was made by a team of six. Rise of the Tomb Raider, the most recent entry in the franchise, from 2015, had around 200 people across art, sound, coding and design, which is what that original team of of six had covered, plus hordes of quality assurance testers and other support roles. It's much harder now to keep the playfulness and flexibility in a game's level design as it moves through the stages of production. Just. For simple reasons of logistics, dozens of artists might have to redo parts of their work or sit around twiddling their thumbs if a designer wants to do what Heather and Neil did during the original Tomb Raider development, which was to keep experimenting and tweaking with the layouts throughout the process. What happens nowadays is that the designers lay out a bunch of boxes that define the levels core geometry, and describe a path, or multiple paths, through the environment. Then the artists come in, and they painstakingly turn those boxes in empty space into what at a glance looks like a living, breathing world. Sometimes that leads to conflict between art and design, so you end up with walls or pipes or bricks of only a certain colour being climbable, or grappleable, or whatever other kinds of physical interaction a game has, like the white walls in Rise of the Tomb Raider. And there's more to this point, but let's come back to it later. First, I need to get back to that grid, and what it meant for the original run of Tomb Raider games on PC and PlayStation 1, and also why the grid is still significant. Tomb Raider 1 shook the world... It changed how video games, and in particular video game characters, were perceived and portrayed in mainstream culture. We'd had game characters that became household names before Croft. There was Pac-Man and Mario and Sonic and perhaps Donkey Kong too. But here was a character that was recognizably human, albeit in exaggerated proportions, and that girls could relate to. Here was a heroine that girls could look up to, And indeed that they did look up to. And she couldn't have arrived at a better time. With the pop group, the Spice Girls, having burst onto the music scene just a few months earlier. With their in-your-face girl power anthem, Wannabe. It wasn't just Lara's Lula as leading lady that people attached to. It was also the game. A computer gaming world review called Tomb Raider's vast and realistic environments spectacular and praised the intricate detail of the level design, not only for how beautiful and tempting it looked, but also for how much of it was accessible and how fun it was to discover what you can and cannot reach. Next Generation magazine called it a landmark title, Tomb Raider was pretty much universally lauded with dozens of awards and millions of copies sold and advertising plastered on billboards and buses and shown on TV. Lara Croft even became a spokesmodel for the Lucasaid energy drink. Amidst all this, the media attention on the little studio became suffocating and the development team lost control of their creation. Marketing were calling the shots now and animator and creative lead Toby Gard didn't like that. He hated how Lara was getting sexualized and pimped out to sell products, and he refused to work on a sequel. Core had never been big on sequels. Their internal culture was more akin to a collective of bedroom coders who all worked together in the same converted mansion. But this one was out of their control. Tomb Raider had sold ridiculous numbers. It had saved the publisher Eidos from bankruptcy. And they wanted another one, rain, hail or shine. Within a few months, Toby would end up leaving the company, programmer Paul Douglas in tow, to get his creative freedom back and to work on something else. Here's how level designer and artist Heather Stevens remembers it.
2: Oh, God, it was horrible. It was horrible when Toby Toby left. I, we we talked, we tried to talk him round. He the a of Tomb Raider 1, he kind of sat in a room there, just mithering on game staff, wrapped up in what had gone on at Idos and the marketing and all the rest of it. And he was kind of, let it go, Toby, enjoy and reap the rewards. Now this is what we've worked for. I don't know, I don't know what went wrong. I don't know why Toby couldn't see that this is what it's all about. When you make a game, you sit back at the end of it, You you... You reap those, you know, those, the profits from the game, any royalties you're going to get, you enjoy, you take a break and you move on and you make another game. Um, I don't know whether it was exhaustion with Toby as well or, or what, but it was just a really, really sad point when he left core. Really sad. Because he was, he, was, he was the founding father of Tomb Raider. He was, you know, he, he was like the p- person who was in charge of the team. He, he held us all together. Um, he tightened up our designs oversaw everything that we did so certainly by the time we did you know when we, when we realized we were going to make Tomb Raider 2 there was definitely I felt apprehensive I didn't feel as though I'd got that net there anymore of Toby you know he, he was more than just a designer he was somebody who who was very good at giving you an input on on how to improve your levels or how he saw you know the game how he visualized the next stage of the game
0: It's here where we begin to see Tomb Raider's other legacy, the cynical side of what Gavin's grid-based level editor enabled. There had been video game sequels before Tomb Raider, of course, and many had even been rushed out to make a quick buck. Quite famously so, in some cases. And there'd also been hit games that had broken into the mainstream, like Space Invaders and SimCity and Myst and Super Mario Bros. But... Tomb Raider was all of these, and more. Tomb Raider is where we saw the emergence, perhaps for the first time, of a systematic marketing machine built around a specific game franchise. A mass marketing machine. And that, perhaps, is what Toby Gard sensed was going to happen when he decided to publicly rail against the overtly sexy marketing and outrageous advertising that Lara was put through, where she's appearing on magazine covers in her underwear. This Indiana Jones-like adventurer. She was his creation, but neither he nor anyone else on the Tomb Raider team had any say in how she would be portrayed outside of the game. They could do nothing to prevent these seductive magazine covers and posters or the gigantic ads that they'd see plastered on the side of a London bus or on a beer mat. They could do nothing about the association forming in people's minds that made Lara Croft famous—not for raiding tombs in a video game and kicking bad guy butt, but for being a sexy virtual character with big breasts, short shorts, a braided ponytail, and some really seductive outfits. Who would sometimes go on an adventure, and nobody, you know,
2: the irony of it, as Richard. The only thing that wound me up about the marketing side of things was you get, often people would go, oh, yeah, you made made Lara Croft. And you just want to go, no, I made Tomb Raider. It's a game. And I don't think people, I think it was the first time that people kind of thought of Lara Croft as 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 uh, as her own separate entity, if you know what I mean. Before that, it was just games with characters in it.
0: And the thing that made it possible for this marketing machine to spin so fast, to constantly keep Ms. Croft in the public eye? I think it was The Grid. Without The Grid, they could have never churned out four high-quality sequels in as many years, albeit with this drip feed of innovation and novelty that was too slow to curb player and critic fatigue, which is why review scores and sales declined steadily from... Incredible, at 7 million and 8 million for the first two games, to merely respectable after that. This drip feed was not one that the developers consciously applied, in fairness. They did the best they could in the limited time they had. But that limited time was so short, only about 9 months per game, that larger changes or improvements were impossible. Not that they actually had that many ideas for new things to do with Gavin's grid-based engine anyway without the large-scale overhauls that just were not possible in the time available.
1: I think with Tomb Raider 2, the main pretty much all the features we put in were more about fixing the things that weren't that were holes in the original so one of the details of the original game was as i say lara was getting all these different moves to help her navigate the environment but there were holes in her repertoire the main one in the first one was that all water had to have a fixed sized lip around the edge and she couldn't wade in it she didn't have any animations for anything like that so there was no kind of concept of a shallow pool or a pool that she could wade in so the level designers had to ensure you know these were the kind of cause of bugs where if they'd accidentally made a bit where a piece of rock on the bottom of a watery bit stuck up too high then Lara would end up it just didn't work so we fixed that up by giving her all the moves she needed to navigate any kind of depth of water and that also allowed them level designers to build slopes that went straight into water and things like that and shallow pools and Bit she had to wade through, which obviously got used quite a lot for uh, things like the sunken ship. The other issue they'd had on Tomb Raider 1 was Lara needing to gain height in the original. Or, you know, obviously she could come down pretty quickly, jumping and hopping between things. But going up, they were constantly having to find that they had to build quite complicated, you know, only a certain height she could jump, so they had to build high chunks of level that were all about Lara just gaining height and they were like well it would be a lot easier if we had things like ladders and walls she could climb that way she could gain height very quickly so that led to all the climbing moves going in what else did she get
0: I want to quickly pause the story here to take a moment to ask that if you're enjoying the show please consider sharing it on social media and reviewing it on iTunes as both of those things can make a huge difference in attracting new listeners. If the app you listen on has some kind of uploading feature, do that instead. And if you can spare a few bucks, I'd appreciate it if you made a one-off donation by paypal.me slash or a monthly donation on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon, where you'll also get access to a bit of bonus stuff. I'll remind you about this again later. There's also another way to help, and that's to listen via the Radio Public app. It's free to use on both Apple and Android devices, and you can easily import all of your existing subscriptions from another app. And the best thing about it is that it's from a not-for-profit company that's working to make the podcasting ecosystem more sustainable, which means that, among other things, when you listen, I get paid. So check it out. Head to radiopublic.com. To find out more and subscribe or listen via lifeintimes.games All right, let's get on with the show.
1: Oh, the other one was just being able to jump whenever you hit the jump button rather than wait until her foot was touching on the ground, which definitely smoothed out her movement. And then, uh, yeah, and the other thing that went into Tomb Raider 2 very early on, which just came out of me playing at Christmas time before it really started, was the dynamic lighting. Um, which we used for kind of flares that she could carry around and drop to light up places and just generally lighting up. I don't think we ever used it quite as much as I hope we would, but uh, it was used for various bits and bobs around the level. I mean, it actually, it actually got to the point where later on when I was playing some levels, I was actually taking out some of the lights so that you had an excuse to use the, the dynamic lighting. That actually led to that room, there's a room on Tomb Raider 2 where you go into a room full of caged Yetis, and it's totally pitch black, and that was purely because I had, suddenly had this bright idea of taking out all the lights, so that you, know, you had a reason to be running around in the dark using your flares.
0: After Tomb Raider 2, the bulk of the team had had enough. If they were to make another Tomb Raider, they said, it had to have a longer development period so that they could do something new with the series. They'd done what they wanted to with the grid as it was and had lost the creative spark to push on with the same set of tools. But publisher Eidos, of course, had other ideas. They'd come to rely on Tomb Raider to balance their books and they insisted that Tomb Raider 3 had to come out a year after Tomb Raider 2.
2: Every one of us had that little creative spark and that point of saying, you know, we've had enough of this now, let's move on. And by the end of Tomb Raider 2, it wouldn't have mattered what people offered us to stay and work on a third one. We wouldn't have took it because we, we, we needed a change. So, yeah, so the rewards were there and we could sit back then and say, OK, I've got my mortgage paid off, which was a dream for any one of us. And we're not talking stupid mortgages, but just to be in a position in life where, you know, if you needed to have a year out of work, you could do it. And that, that was the first time ever a lot of us had experienced that since leaving school at 16. Or if you wanted to set up your own little project or your own hobbies or anything, you had the luxury of being able to do that, paid by the tomb raider, you know. So it was a big thank you to the game. But at the same time, you need, you need to move on from that because you just end up, in a hole, you just wallow in it, and I think it wouldn't have done anybody any good on our team, certainly, to carry on and make any more. I think it would have drained us. And certainly, time-scale-wise, there wasn't any more, well, you know, if we need another four or five months to do it, then that wasn't an option, uh, because those Christmas releases were paramount. As far as IDOS was concerned and core design, it had to be another Christmas release, it had to be another Christmas release. And that was an awful lot of pressure to put anybody under, Certainly the original team, because we'd kind of worked flat out for three years by that stage. I and mean, it was a big ask. I think we all needed a break from it, to be honest.
0: The Tomb Raider team shifted to a new project, while a different team came in to take over for the third game. And this new team opened up the spaces even more, and added a few nifty features like coloured lighting and the ability for Lara to sprint and crawl. Well, maybe the crawling wasn't so well received. But they too quickly ran out of ideas for ways to eke more life out of the original grid system. Shortly before they finished the fourth game, they took advantage of Core's bedroom culture, which had afforded them a lot of day-to-day freedom, to sneak in a surprise ending in an effort to rid themselves of Ms. Croft for a couple of years. Here's how Andy Sandom, one of the level designers, described it to me when I interviewed him for an Ars Technica article back in 2015
3: which you know if you were if you tried to get away with killing lara now you know you'd you'd immediately be sacked probably effectively we just we came up with a script you know to to kind of to because we were getting very tired of of doing tomb raider by tomb raider 4 so we we kind of we decided to kill lara i don't even know if we actually told jeremy but jeremy was perfectly happy with it and um when he found out and um, it's crazy because you know it's like a commodity. Like, obviously, we were aware that, that Lara could be brought back from the dead, so to speak. But um, it's just crazy that we were allowed so much freedom with such a iconic figure, you know? Because they trusted us. They trusted us. With, they trusted
0: our creativity, you know. I, I guess you wouldn't have been much surprised. But um, how did you feel when, uh, you know, after you kill off Lara, Eidos turns around straight away and says, "Are oh, you making another Tomb Raider game?" Yeah, um, that wasn't
3: immediate because realistically, um, what we used to do is that we would spend, because we hadn't quite worked out um, how to schedule ourselves properly at that point. And Adrian was, was introducing new pieces of software like uh, the project manager, the Microsoft project manager. So we were all kind of in the dark as to what we were. Doing. But basically, um, we couldn't schedule ourselves. So what we normally do on the project is we would, we would spend six months crunching till about two or three in the morning every night. And at that age, we could still do it. And then we'd spend about four months pissing around while researching the new game and, and kind of just relaxing in kind of um, enjoying the success of the game, and then, um, but if realistically, if we just scheduled it properly, we could have worked kind of nine to six every day and uh, and not had to crunch. But we, we used to kind of end up crunching for between three and six months at each project, you know. So really, it didn't come straight away. It, you know, we I think Jeremy w- was in talks with them for a while, but I think we knew that there was always going to be some type of timber the game every year. But we we were kind of hoping that. It might get passed on to another team at that point. Amazingly, because you know we were all becoming quite well off out of the game, but um, it, we were kind of hoping at that point that somebody else would take it on. But but yeah, no, we were we were because we knew the system so well, we were kind of dragged back in and um, uh, kicking and screaming. I, I mean, I remember that being the hardest project of all Tomb Raider Five Chronicles, I think it was, simply uh, because. You know, we, we all sat in our own little corners and just kind of hammered it out, really, whereas before it had been, even up to four, it had been a hugely creative environment.
0: As if it wasn't short-sighted enough to drive Tomb Raider into the ground with over-aggressive release schedules and marketing hype, forcing the main Tomb Raider team to work on this fifth game meant that they weren't available to help in the early stages of the first PlayStation 2 Tomb Raider. The Angel of Darkness, which would finally introduce a new engine. Without their experience there, to steer things in the right direction, the project was overscoped and bad decisions were made, and that ultimately would lead to Core Design's downfall. Tomb Raider would end up crossing the Atlantic, entrusted to Legacy of Kane developers Crystal Dynamics, and Core would die a miserably slow death. But that's a different, longer story, and I've told it elsewhere anyway, in that Ars Technica article that I mentioned before. So let's get back to the grid. The Tomb Raider grid's legacy is much the same as Tomb Raider's legacy. It paved the way for the annualised sequels and mass marketing that nearly destroyed Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, Halo, among others. It triggered a shift in video game development that put the focus less on creating a great game and more on hitting marketing milestones and buzzwords. Because there's now often as much money tied up in marketing commitments that are made months in advance as there is in the development itself. And couple that with the technological changes I talked about earlier in the episode, where grids are out of favour and the graphical fidelity has reached a point that you need an army of artists and a large support crew of programmers to get a new game looking can speak and span. And you have an explanation for why classic Tomb Raider's modern successes, games like Uncharted, Horizon Zero Dawn and Rise of the Tomb Raider, feels so different.
1: Running and jump is just not the same. You know, I play these modern games and it's just not quite the same. When you are doing the jumping around on the side of things, it's, I don't know, it doesn't feel much risk to it, does it? When you climb outside of the building, you can't miss the jump ever. Your character's either going to do it or not when you're kind of moving Nathan Drake or, you know, Lara Croft up a sheer rock face, whereas... Obviously Tomb Raider, you did have to look and go, can I make that jump, can I do it, and then hit the button and see if you did. And if you didn't, you were potentially falling halfway down the cliff. But that came out of the fact that it was possible for a player to look at that game, and look at that grid and go, yeah, I reckon I can make that, I can judge that. Whereas in a modern game, that would feel unfair. Cause the jump distances don't tend to be particularly fixed or anything so, you, know, you can hit the button sometimes and watch your character jump some impossible distance you couldn't do just a minute ago just because that's where the kind of catch points have been placed in the level and they can put further apart in this particular case so you know the animation stretches and the character shoots across some huge distance but we didn't do that at all
0: the principles of that old grid do live on however They're in the methodical puzzling of mobile game Lara Croft Go, and the precise level design of Rise of the Tomb Raider's optional tombs. And they're in one of the most popular, most successful games of all time. Minecraft. Minecraft's blockiness is no mere aesthetic. It's the consequence of its voxel-based engine, a cubic variation on the same grid conceit that Tomb Raider used.
1: It's a limitation, sort of, that engine, but it's also what makes that game what it is. You know, Minecraft doesn't. If you try to imagine a kind of Minecraft where you had a freeform environment, it's just suddenly a completely different game. You know, it's not really going to work anymore. It's not going to be the same thing. And I think that's sort of what happened with Tomb Raider. Was those early games? The moment we lost that grid on Fringe of Darkness, and those guys were trying to do freeform environments, everything went a bit sideways. It's very mildly,
0: really. Grids provide limitations and restraints, which can certainly hold back a design. But if given enough fidelity, and if paired with a few well-designed systems that adhere to the same logic, they become magnificent tools for creativity. And that's what Minecraft is. It's a game about creativity. It's a game about making, unmaking, and remaking stuff using small cubes on a grid. Tomb Raider's level design process in the days of the grid was much the same.
1: You know, Tomb Raider levels tended to evolve. In the early days, we had design meetings that, you know, spend all day coming up with all kinds of different puzzles and that, and then level designs went off and just built, you know, stuff <laughs> that were vaguely related to what we talked about. But we started to realise by Tomb Raider 2, we got it down to kind of a couple of hours where we'd come up with maybe half a dozen key points in the level that, would be cool because we knew that you know they'd go away and they take those basic ideas you know they just need a few ideas to sort of get them going kind of thing And then they'd take that and as they build the level they embellish it just naturally because that's the way it kind of worked with the room as as you stuck something down because Laura was going to be able to catch on to it if you put something at the right height suddenly that shed you built Um, Oh, well, actually, why don't I make a go across the top of it? Oh, actually, why don't I put key up there then? Oh, actually, that's like, you know, I had that kind of a little insight into it because I did build the basis of the Venice level on Tomb Raider 2 because Heather was running out of time and saying, oh, I've got time to do it. So I built it over the weekend because we got the boat working and we needed, you know, it's like, well, we can't miss out with key Venice level, the one with boat, the one with the canals. So I just had a go and I just, built the basis of that level and I just discovered how it worked that you just went oh yeah I could just make it go oh actually you know just sticking some awnings down outside of buildings and you go, Oh, actually be cool if she went up there Oh, no, no. and then they've evolved very much like that which, uh, I think it was fun the fact that the graphics and the yeah I guess that's why it's kept people carrying on playing with it
0: The Tomb Raider level editor was released free with the PC version of the fifth game, and it's still used by a passionate community of fan creators today, many of whom are involved in the level editing community because they don't see any other games that can scratch the same itch as old school Tomb Raider. And with their custom modifications and extensions to the editor, it's actually able to produce some incredible levels, and remarkably organic looking environments, all while still adhering to that grid that preserves the game's internal logic. And so I think these amateur creators have proven that the Tomb Raider grid system could still have a place in game design today, if only someone had the courage to do so, outside of Minecraft and Minecraft-like games. And I guess someday we probably will, given that there are tens or hundreds of millions of kids growing up with Minecraft's simple grid-based creation systems, and they will eventually look for something that applies the same principles to other kinds of game experiences, to different kinds of adventures. Because a world built playfully and whimsically out of blocks will always lend itself to curiosity and playfulness. On the part of its visitors. While a world that's built methodically out of pre-carved stone will tend to divert attention to the one true path, the preordained touch points on the way to the objective, such that everything else becomes window dressing. Which leaves me wondering: the graphical fidelity and realistic animations of games like Uncharted 4. Assassin's Creed Origins and Call of Duty World War II It's wonderful. At times it's utterly breathtaking. But at what cost has it come to the design? What might these games have been? Had their level designers had the ability to experiment and play with a more rigid, limited, consistent, open-ended system like the Tomb Raider level editor? Or Minecraft? Are we really better off? chasing the technology curve. Don't you
3: think you've seen enough?
0: The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, produced, and scored entirely by me, with the exception of a couple of brief excerpts from composer Nathan McCree's soundtracks to the first two Tomb Raider games. Tomb Raider 1, 2, and 3 are available digitally on PC, Mac, PlayStation 3, and Vita, and also mobile through several different storefronts. I'll get a small cut of the sale price if you buy the iOS version of Tomb Raider 1 or Tomb Raider 2, uh, both of which have had their graphics improved a little, via tr one ios or tr 2 ios That's all lowercase with the number 1 or 2. I think this is the best way to play the games, but only if you have an external controller that's compatible because the touchscreen controls are really tough to handle during the more difficult areas If you enjoyed the show please tell other people about it it'll also be a huge help if you can leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this episode on social media The life and times of video games is on Twitter and now also Instagram at lifeandtimesvg If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, which also means actual, consistent episode output, head to laughintimes.games. patreon, as thanks you can get things like ad-free episodes and bonus content, and a bit of uh, behind-the-scenes info, and even the chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. I also now accept one-off donations via PayPal. So if you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can send a payment via paypal.me slash mossrc. And finally, a a brief announcement. I've recently added the show to the Radio Public podcast directory. Radio Public is a public benefit corporation that wants to make the podcasting ecosystem more sustainable for everyone, including small-time independent producers like me. It's pretty nifty. They don't need any logins or registration. They'll accept any podcast feed, which means you can import your existing subscriptions, no problem. And they have an app that works on Apple and Android devices. And the most interesting thing from my side as a podcast creator is that they have a paid listens program that pays podcasters every time a listener hears at least 60% of an episode. And the only other thing you have to do is put up with an ad being played at the beginning or at the end of each episode you listen to. So, check it out. Head to radiopublic.com to find out more, and subscribe or listen via lifeandtimes.games slash radiopublic. And as always, you can find links to everything mentioned here at lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, I'm going to try something a little different. It'll be a shorter episode probably without any interviews at all, based rather entirely on research. And then after that, I'll be back to business as usual through the last four episodes of the season. Until then, my name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya. I waffled again, Richard,
2: sorry.